Thank you, John. Just a light-hearted text for my return from sabbatical. Back by popular demand, and I am, of course, talking about my moustache, which absolutely nobody has missed, <laughs> especially Amy. Ah, well. Why don't we pray? And just as we pray, we might also just consider our offering to God and particularly that area of financial generosity that shapes us and marks us as a church. So Father, we bring ourselves to you today, our whole selves, Lord, seeking to leave nothing out, to, not to parcel anything to the side over which we say you can't have access here. And so we include, Lord, our, our finances in that. We ask you to shape us into generous people. We ask you too that as we open scripture today, as we hear the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, that you would speak. Without your voice, everything's futile. Human ideas will not cut it in this moment. And so we welcome you, Spirit of God, speak to us and upon us and through us the words of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, it's good to be back. I've been away. For those that don't know, don't care, uh, I've been away uh, for a little while and it's a delight to be back with you today. And uh, I... Thanks, Ross. Thank you very much. No, 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 no. No clapping, no clapping. No clapping. I'll only go to my head. Um, We are, uh, I I actually, I've got one of these phones that sort of gives you uh, pictures and reminds you of things you did years ago that you actually can't remember. Uh, And this is a picture that came up for me just the other day. It was, there it is. That is our first ever Sunday. September the 4th, I think, 2016. And uh, we're 50% adults, 50% children. And you can see on the back there, this is in our garden, the children just whispering to each other. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, those fellas have got no idea what they're doing. (laughs) And they were right. And uh, that's pretty much still the case. But it's been amazing just to see this community taking shape over the years. And if you're joining today or um, you're new to this, Don't think that because we painted the walls and got some TV screens and some hipster lights that there's no part for you to play. We are just getting going. And we just, we really do firmly believe that there are more exciting things ahead uh, for us than we've seen. But we also, I feel personally, maybe it's just because I've had some time off and all that good stuff, but this is in a a, a particular way a fresh beginning. And so I encourage you just to begin to engage uh, with all that is to come. There we go. All right, well, it will come as no surprise to many of you, certainly those of you who know me uh, reasonably well, that one of my least favorite aspects of this pandemic we've been living through has been the proliferation of advice uh, that has been offered by various different uh, bodies coming from every corner. And most of this, uh, my dislike of this, mostly has to do with one of my primary character flaws. Now, there are many character flaws, most of which I wouldn't even let you know about, but this one in particular uh, has reared its ugly head in the last little while, and that is my dislike of being told what to do. 
Now, all the advice has been well-intentioned. In fact, let's be honest, some of it's been essential for public health. Uh, Other parts of it have just been helpful uh, to know. But the piece of advice that's particularly rankled me, it's irritated me as I've come across it in all manner of different places has been this one. Stay safe. Stay safe. You've, you've probably heard this advice. Somebody's told you, stay safe. Uh, this has become the benediction, the blessing that we leave each other with. You know, I've, I've had conversations with people on the street, people I didn't know, people I do, and they've just ended up by saying, walking the dog, and uh, have a little conversation, obviously at a distance, and somebody says at the end, stay, you stay safe. Uh, I've received emails which once upon a time used to be signed off with people saying many thanks or take care or if it's a, uh, you know, an email from a brother or sister in the faith may say grace and peace or love in Christ and it's now sort of, thank you, stay safe, well then Jeff. It's good to have you back Jeff. Isn't it great to have Jeff back? Email sign off, television hosts, ending, uh, ending, uh, Programs with this, you name it, stay safe, has become the watchword of a season of life. And it, let's be honest, yeah, I'm, it's understandable. But I kind of want to say, stay safe. You do understand that we live on a planet that even now is hurtling through the vacuum of space at 67,000 miles per hour. You do know, don't you, that our solar system, the Milky Way, is moving its way, whirling its way through uh, the broader, uh, the galaxy, the Milky Way, sorry, at 490,000 miles per hour. How exactly in the context of that are we to stay safe? To which the answer, I suppose, is that we need to wash our hands for 20 seconds. Now, I'm poking fun, of course. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, We have to ask ourselves, don't we, is the advice to stay safe, is it actually befitting the life of a disciple? Should this be something that, as advice, we are prioritizing in the front and center of life if we're disciples of Jesus? For one, you know, think about the life and ministry, the teaching of Jesus, think about the example of Jesus. Can you imagine these words on the lips of Jesus? Guys, stay safe. No, 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 he says, you know, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Don't take a bag with you. Uh, Don't take a cloak, you know. I want you to just cast out demons where you see them. Uh, Heal the sick wherever you come across that. And that's not a life of safety principally. And then we, of course, have the example of Jesus himself. You know, if Jesus is intended, had intended to live a safe existence, we have to say he was a dramatic failure. You know, that whole sort of crucifixion thing was a little bit of a wrinkle in the plan of staying safe. And then, of course, we have the testimony of Christians through the ages. You know, Christians who stayed back in Rome during their great pandemic to care for the sick and who lost their lives because they were caring for those who were sick among them, not just their own sick, but the sick who were exposed on the streets to death by their own families. Or or what kind of uh, message is stay safe? to Afghani Christians sheltering in caves at the moment. And in today's teaching text, we see in black and white, were there any doubt, we see in black and white Jesus teaching that there is another way in the kingdom other than prioritizing safety. Jesus, verse 27, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. So by this time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is... He has been making waves. He has quite literally at different points been walking on them and he takes his disciples on a little bit of a geography field trip. Now for those geographers among us, you might want to know that Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles north of Galilee. Jesus is going out, if you like, of the Holy Land to some uh, location, location, location. And he's trying to teach his disciples something and as if it's just a flippant question, He says to them while he's on the way, who do people say that I am? Starter for 10. Who do people say that I am? What is my identity? What's the rumor on the street? What's the word on the street about who I am? And Peter responds, well, there are a variety of different answers, Jesus. Some are saying John the Baptist, other Elijah, and so on. Now, if we're gonna understand this Occasion. If we're going to understand this question, we need to understand the context impacts what's going on. Jesus, as we've said, is on the way to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place that had been known as Banias or Panias. It was a place, it was the city of Pan. It was known for particularly a pagan shrine to all kinds, the panoply, the, the uh, pandemic, there's another word with pan, the, the suite of gods were worshipped at Panias. Here we have a picture. I presume an artist's impression rather than a photograph. Although the ruins, you can still actually see the ruins of this. And including the most recent god worship there was the Emperor Augustus. And it's here, it's in this place that Jesus begins to ask, who do people say that I am? Temple in the background, shrines littered around the place. Who do people say that I am? It's as if he's saying, how do I stack up against the others? And it's here that the first great confession about the identity of Jesus, outside of the words of the demons, I should say, is made. And Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the true king, you're the authentic king. You're the son of the living God. He rightly articulates something that perhaps has been on the edge of the disciples' expression for some time. We might say his eyes are opened, only they're not fully opened. They're not fully opened. But the significance of this moment in Caesarea Philippi is Jesus is saying, in the words of a scholar, Ben Witherington III, he says this, I'm the contender, they're the pretender. I'm the reality, they are the parody. I'm the son of God and these guys aren't, not even the emperor. It's like Jesus saying, this is who I am. And he does it by asking this question. And the disciples, and this is articulated by Peter, they see something. But they don't yet see everything. Then he began to teach in verse 31, that the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. Jesus here redirects the conversation. This is where, it's, it's not a moment of congruence with the temple of Pan, it is a moment of conflict with the temple. Jesus here is, is contrasting and, and Peter here is thinking, well, this is an object lesson and Peter, Jesus is like, no, this is a case in 
contrasts. He begins to teach them that his way, his kingdom is gonna be completely unlike every other kingdom they've ever seen. And so Peter does the natural thing you would do. He says, what? Stop it, Jesus. You're better than that. He shuts Jesus down. He rebukes Jesus. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, it's understandable that Peter gets caught up, that he stumbles. That's understandable, isn't it? Can you blame him? This is a setup. Jesus has taken him to this beautiful place, this place of worship, this place of power and glory and majesty in an earthly sense. He's taken him to a religious place. And so Peter naturally thinks Jesus must have a religious agenda. But what Jesus has come to do is entirely irreligious. It has nothing to do with the typical ascent of religion which says glory, glory, glory. It has to do with descent, crucifixion. It is a kingdom story. And this is why Mark places the story of the blind man who sees in two phases right before this story. The blind man that uh, was read, John read the story of him, who comes to Jesus, his friend said, look, can you heal this guy? And Jesus lays his hands on him, he sees, he says, I can see, but it's like trees walking around. Jesus lays his hands on him again, and then he's healed. The blind man is a parable. The blind man is a sign of what's about to happen with the disciples. See, Jesus speaks, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter sees, but he doesn't fully see. Peter sees, but it's like trees walking. You know, sometimes seeing in the kingdom is a two-stage, three-stage, five-stage, ten-stage, hundred-stage, million-stage process because we get distracted. Peter just got, surely that what happened is he got distracted, didn't he? He saw the glory and the magnificence, 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 of the, of the carvings, he saw the Greco-Roman culture and he thought, I wouldn't mind a piece of this, if I'm honest. Temple of Pan, we could have a temple of Jesus, maybe we'll just move in. There'd be a nice seat for me alongside Jesus and, and he could preach here and who knows, if he was tired, maybe I'd get a go. We'd do well here. I think Galilee's nice, but... This is also nice. He became enamored uh, with the glory, the architecture and everything else. He got distracted by it, so much so that he'd stopped looking at Jesus. You see, there was this other glory around, but he couldn't see it because he'd become so allured by this human thing, this fleshly thing, this stones, this bricks and mortar thing. And so he missed the kingdom. Jesus had, Jesus has another way to his glory. The gospel is telling a completely different story from the culture of ascent, the story of ascent in our culture. It is a story of resurrection, it's a story of victory, it's a story of power, but it comes through death. It comes through uh, self-denial, it comes through giving yourself. 
Offering yourself. Surrender is the gateway into the kingdom. Not accruing and amassing power, but offering yourself. And he's saying to his disciples, you know, this invitation, this call is for you, and it it means walking on the path that I'm about to walk on. We can become distracted as disciples, can't we? And we look around at our friends, we look around at the cultural architecture, maybe we look around at uh, our colleagues, and and we think, well, I kind of like the way that they live. Tell me who didn't enjoy a little line on a Sunday morning over the last 18 months, and thinking, oh, it'd be kind of nice not to have to get up so early, you know. My friends do that every week. You know, who thought to themselves, who sees their friends living in a certain way and thinking, it would be nice to have an ever-increasing confidence in my bank account, a security in my bank account. Be nice not to have to give regularly out the first fruits of who I am to the church and to people around me in need. Be nice to sort of shut that down and just gain a bit more security. It'd be nice to have autonomy, choice, self-determination about how I spend my time as well as my treasure, my time. Maybe it'd be great for me to determine how I choose my talent, how I build my career. It'd be lovely for me to determine how I should employ my body, how I should uh, use my sexuality. It'd be fantastic for me to have the choice about how that should be done. But all of those, all of those postures, none of those is living out the gospel story. They're all self-determination, self-expression. And the problem, uh, as it's articulated in the scriptures, particularly as it comes to a climax in the gospel, is the problem in the world is the self. That's the problem. That's the problem that the Bible is articulating. So self-help, self-expression, all of these self Words beginning with self and ending with a hyphen and some other word, except perhaps self-denial, we'll get to that. (laughs) They all actually lead away from this kingdom agenda. The problem is the self. And there's a three-letter word in the scripture, and the word is sin. And sin is the the Christian, the Judeo-Christian, actually, articulation of the problem in the world. And sin is not the same as sins. Sins are uh, peccadillo, peccadillos, foibles, things we do wrong, but sin, as Paul articulates it in the New Testament, is the real problem. And sin is not stuff you've done wrong. Sin is a power into which you and every part of creation is enslaved. And what is needed is uh, not just sort of recovery, but, but actually deliverance. And the story of the gospel is that deliverance has come fully and finally in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, that he was crucified for you, that he was raised for you. And that by partnering with him, by trusting in him, you receive the benefits of his life, the benefits of his death, and the benefits of his resurrection. It's the most extraordinary story, but it's so opposite to the story the culture's telling, because to get into that kingdom, to get into the kingdom of the culture, it is religion. Play your part, earn your way, and the gospel is not for the religious, it is for the irreligious. The gospel is a message which is heard as good news to people and by people and with people who can't make it on their own who need help, not just help, but rescue and salvation. 
I love it what Paul says in Romans. He says, you know, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. (laughs) Every one of us should read that and think, thank God. Oh, God, thank God. The ungodly, the irreligious, people like you and me. If this whole thing is for the religious, let me be frank, excuse my French, we're screwed. The pandemic's the least of our problems. If this story is for the religious, but if it's for the irreligious, if the grace of God in Christ is, is good news to the irreligious, there is nobody in, on the whole of heaven or earth who doesn't need to hear that news who won't receive that as good news. An addict, it's good news to you. Slave to sin, we all are. Good news to you. And so Jesus corrects Peter's error. Peter has in mind the temple, he has in mind the story of religion, human religion, and Jesus says, nuh-uh. Except he's far more articulate. He says, if anyone... Now listen to this, verse 34. He called the crowd. Peter took Jesus aside. Let me have a private word. Jesus calls the crowd. He does his rebuking in public. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for my sake will find it. What will it benefit? What would it profit a, a man, a woman? If they gain the whole world and forfeit their life, what can you give in return for your life? What is at play in the gospel is life. It's a story of life. But it's a life that comes through offering ourselves to God through Christ. And we can begin to think that the following Jesus story guarantees things that We would like. We might want to write a blank check of all the things we'd like to see. Yet the gospel is telling a different story. Stay safe. What about live adventurously? What about obey completely? What about suffer redemptively? Jesus says this, those who want to save, secure, make safe their life will lose it. But those who are willing to lose their life hand it over for my sake, will actually save it. They'll find it. It's not less life in the kingdom. It's, it's, It's more life. It's a different quality of life. It's just accessed a completely different way. It's, it's, it's God's life. You can protect your life and all, you've, your, all you'll ever have. This is what Jesus is saying. All you'll ever have is a version of your life. You can give your life and you can have a version of my life says Jesus, not my life, Johnny's life. You would not want my life. (laughs) Stick with your own sin. You don't want mine. You can have God's life flowing within you by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that good news? Wasn't that worth coming to church to hear? You can have it online, but it's not as good. And so the mandate to live adventurously comes from the heart of the gospel. It's directly connected to the question, who do you say that I am? 
because the people who have answered that question, who have determined and discovered, they've not even determined it. That makes it sound like we get it. They've received a revelation from God that this is the truth, that Jesus truly is the way to life. Those people understand that everything they ever really need, not necessarily everything they might have wanted, but everything they need is secured for them by God in Christ. And so they have what it takes to live adventurously. They can live adventurously in their home life. They can live adventurously in their work life, in their friendships, and on and on. You know, we can't live the adventurous life of the kingdom unless we first have an answer to that question. Who do you say that I am? And I just wonder whether this moment for us as a church, but also more broadly, this moment for the church as we re-emerge in some way, some shape, some form, God willing, from the last 18 months or so, what if this moment is a Caesarea Philippi moment? A moment for each of us individually, but also more importantly, collectively, to answer the question, who are we as communities of faith, as assemblies of Christians gathered in this city, in this nation, in the world? Who do we say that he is? Because honestly, if he's just a spiritual guide, a little bit of a guru to give you some wisdom here and there when you're struggling, that's not reason to get out of bed and come to church on a Sunday. It's certainly not reason to give your life. But if he's the Lord of the universe, if he died for our sins, was raised for our justification, if his spirit is available filling us now and actually changing us from the inside out so that we become progressively more free as we're redeemed and uh, sanctified, if that is the story, then that's reason to give everything. That's reason to adventure. We can adventure because we are safe in God And that's what we're going to be doing in this season to come. We're going to be adventurously and relentlessly focused on the presence of God. Above all else, we are not seeking, are we, as God's church, to build a brand. Can we just stop doing that? It's really boring. But we are aiming to build an altar which befits a crucified king. We are adventurously and faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to a world steeped in bad news, religion, misinformation, and misadventure. We're adventurously expressing acts of mercy and compassion that touch the heart of God and meet the needs of a hurting and fearful, isolated world all around us. We're going to adventurously, no, we're not going to, we are, as God's church, adventurously and boldly reaching out with a message of forgiveness to sinners, knowing that we sinners have been forgiven. And we're adventurously and generously meeting the needs of our neighbors in acts of hospitality and kindness that lead them to ask the question, who do I say that he is? Don't domesticate your vision of Jesus. Don't allow your life to be tame and unadventurous. Trust that God has a greater experience of life. Greater presence, perhaps even greater suffering, but greater wholeness 
than ever you imagined through Jesus. This is not the time for the church to shrink back in fear, but to explode in love. Why don't we pray? And maybe if you're able, you might stand with me as we pray. And we simply ask, Holy Spirit, come and do among us things which we are just completely incapable of doing. Well, thank you that you have articulated very clearly that there is no good news in religion, but there is so much good news in Jesus. We lay down today our attempts to be good in our strength. Our attempts to change, to manage our behavior, to appear in a certain way. Thank you, Father, that we are sinners in your loving hands.